And if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Acts chapter 20. I decided there's no way to do this passage justice, so I'm just going to do the best I can. So, there's a, a very large church on the East Coast with a high-energy pastor that's extremely well-known and very influential in some circles. There's nothing wrong with being a high-energy pastor. <laughs> if you're faithful to God's word, that is. But there have been controversies about him and about, and about the church. The local news in his town actually had a whole show about his house, his 16,000 square foot custom built home and it caused a little stir and, and then there was a controversy a couple years ago about a coloring book the church created for their own Sunday school. Now it's nice if you're a big enough church you can create your own coloring books but um, the coloring book is about, is about what they call the code and the code are these 12 values that the pastor created that keeps the church going and the kids were gonna they learned like six out of the twelve things on the code in this coloring book well um, one of the values is unity which is a good value and so it's got a big coloring book page and it says unity and uh, there and underneath it it says we are united under the visionary and there's a picture a coloring book style picture of the pastor and the kids in Sunday school are supposed to color the picture of the pastor as their visionary and, and the unity. And then there's a Bible verse underneath where it says, I saw you roll your eyes. <laughs> we are underneath the visionary. There's a, there's a, a scripture verse under there and it's Romans 13.1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, I've actually never seen Romans 13 used about a pastor before. I, I guess you could stretch the idea of authority to that, but if you read Romans 13, it's about paying your taxes and obeying the government. I mean, that's what it's about. But, um, uh, so that's a little shocking. Another of the code's values is, so this is one of the 12 things, we are all about the numbers. Tracking metrics measures effectiveness. We unapologetically set goals and measure progress through all available quantitative means. Well, I kind of appreciate they're honest about that, that they're all about the numbers, because most churches won't say that, even if they are all about the numbers, but um, it was kind of interesting that they would say that. Now, more recently, this, this gentleman has um, kind of veered into some pretty strange doctrinal issues and, and teaching most of his sermons are sort of pick me up, you know, the Lord's going to bless you, just be, uh, all that kind of stuff, the kind of people-centered sort of uplifting kind of sermons. Very popular guy on, on all of that stuff. Uh, but recently he started, he, he gave a sermon about God revealing his name to Moses. You remember when Moses was before the Lord in Exodus chapter 3 and the, Moses says, what if they ask me what your name is when, when you send me to the Israelites? What if they, what are you going to, what would I, what would I tell them? And God said, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And famous pastor said, when God said I am to Moses, you know, my name is I am, he was trying to get him to see you are as I am. And the church picked up stones to throw at him. No, they didn't. They, they, 
they just ate it up. They just, they, they just ate that up. And then he said, because we're identified, we've identified ourselves with Christ, that to say I am, and at the same time to be insecure and doubt yourself, is a violation of the third commandment. You know what the third commandment is? You shall not take God's name in vain. So he says, if you doubt yourself, you are violating the commandment against taking God's name in vain. And he even said, because God's spirit dwells in us, he was, he's a very excitable person. So I don't know if he realized what he was saying or not, but in that sermon, it's still out there. Um, he thumped his chest and said, I am God Almighty. Now the coloring book may have led to that. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's an attitude about leadership that I kind of wanted to focus on with that. I, I, I think I can say that he will never doubt himself because if he's God Almighty, what is there to doubt, right? Um, but actually, that's exactly what he should be doing is doubting himself because of what he's put forth. And he's part of a very, very large evangelical denomination and they haven't said a word to him. They haven't said a word. And the elders of his church should, now I'm assuming he has elders because if you go on the church website, you know, most churches you go to the website and they have like our, our, our leadership team, they have pictures of everybody. It only has a picture of him. There's nobody else. This is a church of 25,000 people and there's only a picture of him and his wife. So his wife writes books and sells things too. So um, my point of saying all this isn't to pick on this poor slob, but it's, <laughs> it, his elders should have stood up to him and they didn't, which tells you a lot about the leadership there. And, Pastors can go off the deep end. You have to know that. They're not, well, they're not God, that's for sure. <laughs> but they're, they're human and every weird thing that humans get into, min people in ministry can get into. And the vanity and the self-promotion and the obsession with self is pretty common in our culture, this kind of narcissistic culture we have. So uh, don't be surprised if it ends up in churches. Not only pastors can go off the deep end, whole denominations can go off the deep end. And that has happened in this last century multiple times. Um, just denying the faith altogether. I was raised in a denominational church that by the time I was there as a young person, they had abandoned the faith. And uh, so we still sang the faith because a guy named Martin Luther wrote our liturgy, but um, the people in leadership there didn't believe what we were singing and never talked about it, never talked about Christ as a savior or anything like that. So leadership matters, that's my, that's my theme here. Those, those chosen to lead a church carry this incredible responsibility both by their example and by their commitment to scripture, God's revelation. Charles Spurgeon once said, compromise on leadership is the most suicidal act a church can commit. And he's right. He's right. You can't just throw anybody in leadership. Oh, we need a leader. Let's, uh, who, who are we going to get? Uh, well, Joe, he's really big in his business world. A lot of people respect him. Let's get Joe. Well, you know, Joe is an alcoholic. Well, you know, let's not deal with that too much. But um, he's got a mistress too. Well, that's okay, you know, as long as he, whatever. Um, what does he mean by compromise when he says compromise on leadership? Well, it could be moral compromise. Um, but how does it happen? Well, a church is compromised when unqualified people are put in positions of leadership. So a church has elders and deacons and elders are 
responsible. They're the shepherds of the flock. Their job is to spiritually oversee the church, and the deacons are the the worker bees that make sure everything's going good and taking care of the poor and functioning and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we can go off the deep end. Pa- people can go off the deep end. James three one. James said, everybody seems to know this verse. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And when you stand before God the coloring book page isn't going to mean a whole lot. Or the numbers, the metrics, that's not going to mean a whole lot. It's about faithfulness. Faithfulness to scripture and faithfulness to the things that God has revealed. So a lot of passages in the New Testament about church leadership. And Jesus really laid the foundation for that um, uh, in his words to the 12 apostles. He said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors but it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? They didn't used to sit in chairs. They used to recline on sofas. Who's the greater one, the one being served or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's what Jesus said. And that's the model. That's the model for church leadership. Jesus actually turned the world's idea of leadership upside down. And even though not many of them are very humble, even, even great governments in the Western world, the Christian world, we call their offices ministries, right? Because they're supposed to be servants. That's, that's, that word minister means servant. And they don't act like it a lot of times, but that's what they were supposed to be. They're supposed to serve the greater good or serve the king or whatever the thing might be. So Jesus said the greatest is the lowliest and he demonstrated that when he washed the disciples' feet. The rabbis had a rule that a Hebrew slave could not be made to wash people's feet because that is so lowly a job. He had to hire a Gentile to do that or something like that. Jesus did that voluntarily as an example his last example really before his death and resurrection to the disciples. So later when the church was spreading across the world this view of leadership because it's so contrary to the way the world is it it has to be renewed and thought through and reevaluated and reaffirmed over and over and over again because it's not the world's way and it's really easy to adapt the world's way of leadership in the church. It's a very rare leader who truly operates as a servant and and doesn't want to be a king of some kind, you know. So reminders are constantly needed for leaders in the church that that's the kind of people they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be servants. Peter reminded the elders of the church he worked with about the nature of their calling in 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a brief exhortation there Most importantly, he says, the church is not to lord it over the flock. This is a pretty well-known passage too. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. I love it that he says that. Here's Peter. Peter, the apostle, right? Jesus' right-hand man, the kind of the chief of the apostles. And he doesn't write to them and say, I exhort the elders among you as the apostle that stands over you. He doesn't say that. He says, I... Exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, 
but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Be an example, not a king. That's what he's saying. And never think, never think about what gain you will get from doing that, financially or otherwise. Of course, Paul had a lot to say about leadership. You know, three of Paul's letters in the New Testament are written to pastors, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus were part of his team and they were shepherding different congregations, churches that Paul had um, planted. And these letters give a lot of brief exhortations, a lot of practical advice for a pastor in different difficult search, church situations at the time. But also, First, first Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 actually give a list of the qualifications for elders and First Timothy 3, deacons also, and deaconesses. But here's Titus 1, 5. He, he tells Titus, appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, now he's going to describe what kind of men he's talking about, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, in those days that might have had more, <laughs> having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer, that's another word for elder. There's three words for elders, pastors, shepherds uh, in the Bible. This is another one. Overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. That always comes up. But hospitable, loving, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching or the doctrine so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So there's a lot there that's really worth going over. I don't think anybody really worthy of this office, feels like he totally measures up to that, uh, those standards every second, because we all have weaknesses, right, and we have human failings, but there's, those are real standards, though. I mean, they are real. They're not to be just, oh, what a great idea. Wish we could find humans like that. That's not the way we're supposed to look at that. Pride is, is never a completely defeated enemy, is it? So a leader always has the potential to be a little prideful and that sometimes has to be pointed out. But these qualities that he lists, they should be substantially true of anyone that's elevated to that office of a shepherd of, of Christ's flock, an overseer as he puts it there. So we have a lot on leadership in the New Testament, but I don't think there's any exhortation to leaders as passionate as what we find in Acts chapter 20 uh, because Paul is giving his final speech to men that he's raised up, the Ephesian elders. And it's just a fount of rich teaching, this whole whole section. It grabs your attention. And Luke was there, so he witnessed it. And he gives it to us, thank the Lord. So if you love Jesus, if you care about the church of Jesus Christ, it's not hard to find this exhortation just deeply moving. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a call to faithfulness. And it's incredibly easy for churches to be unfaithful. It happens all the time all the time for a variety of reasons and in a, a variety of ways churches can fail in different ways you know the book of revelation 
it's supposed to be all about the end times, right? But the first three chapters, uh, the, well, chapter two and chapter three are focused on these seven churches and Jesus is speaking to each of these seven churches. Do you remember that? And there's something different about all of them. A couple of them are doing really well. A couple of them are horrible. And he's challenging them. So, you know, Revelation was probably written in the mid to late 90s AD. So it, kind of a generation after Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. And one of the churches Jesus is speaking to in the book of Revelation, in fact, it's the first one, chapter two, is, is the church of Ephesus. The same guys he's talking to. Not the same individuals, because they were probably passed from the scene by then, but the same church. And it's pretty challenging what he says. It's no, it's no accident, I think, based on what happens here in Acts, that the Ephesian church, a whole generation later, has not strayed in the area of doctrine. They, they, they do hold fast the faithful word. They held firm. But Jesus commands that church um, to repent because he says you've lost your first love. But he's also really careful to praise them. To praise them. He commends them because he says you cannot tolerate evil men. That's really important. In other words, they might have kind of sunk a little bit in their zeal and kind of become formal and some of that, but they would not tolerate wicked men in leadership, self-absorbed men, prideful men, kings, or wicked men of any kind, any compromised people. They wouldn't allow that. And he actually mentions people who call themselves apostles. There's a lot of people running around like that these days too. But he does critique them a little bit. So Paul starts off here in Acts 20 using himself as a model of faithfulness. He's not ashamed to do that because he does meet these qualifications. He's not a perfect person, but he meets these qualifications. He's not bragging. He's, he's not into himself. You can tell Paul is not into himself from everything he went through. But he is using himself as an example. And he does not conclude that the Spirit of God in him allows him to declare that he is God Almighty. He doesn't do that. In fact, the Spirit of God in him confirms the great truth that only God is God and that we are unworthy servants of him, which is exactly what Jesus teaches. So fundamentally, this speech to the Ephesian elders is a, is a farewell speech. That's what it is. That's what it does in the narrative. He actually calls them down to him. In verse 1, it says... Um, I'm sorry, not a verse one, I'm sorry, the first section of this. See, I'm jumping all around these today, aren't I? Getting all messed up. Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So remember he sailed past Ephesus because he didn't want to get stuck there. So he goes a little bit farther down the coast and stops at Mytilene and then he calls for the elders to come to him. So he, he's, he wants to see them one more time because he's probably not ever going to see them again and he knows it. So it's his last speech to them, his last words for them. And this speech, it's not just for them, it's for the church down through the ages. It's for all of us to remember, to lift our eyes to, to what's the church supposed to be and what kind of leaders is it supposed to have. That's, that's what this is all about. So ultimately it's a warning. It's a warning to the shepherds of the flock, the elders who are pastoring the churches about spiritual dangers Dangers that still exist and dangers that will exist until Jesus comes. So let's see how he begins here. Verse 18, 
When they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Humility, tears, trials. Those are the things he says they should know about him. You guys should, he's just calling back their memories. What do they know about him? They know from the first day and throughout the next three years, the whole time he says, and the key phrase there I think is he was serving the Lord. And that word serving is the verb form of the, of the Greek word for slave. He was slaving for the Lord is really what he's saying there. He was a slave, not just a slave, he was a slave of whom? Of the Lord. He wasn't building an empire of Paul. He was building churches for the glory of the Lord. He was not serving himself. He was God's slave and his only purpose was serving his Lord. That's all that his heart desires. That's all that his heart seeks is to serve the Lord. And he does this, he says, verse 19, with all humility. Now humility is a really long Greek word. But it means lowliness of mind. That's what, that's what it means. If you want to understand what this looks like, sometime this week just pick up your Bible and, and open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 12 and just read those chapters. 2 Corinthians 10 through 12. There Paul is dealing with pseudo-apostles, that's actually what the Bible calls them, false apostles, false shepherds who have infiltrated the church in Corinth and they're boasting about their power and their gifts. They have coloring books all about them that they used to hand out there. Pin and quill and coloring books with their pictures in it. And even though Paul has, Paul has power and he has power that's far beyond anything they have and the gifts given to him personally by Christ and, and, and given to very few people, he has those powers. And so he, has, he isn't going to play that game though with them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 7 he says, he, he calls it foolishness to boast about your power. Uh, this, he calls it foolishness, this confidence of boasting is the phrase he uses. And Because he says, I have to boast now, and he says, it's so stupid to boast. Because what do we have that isn't given to us, right? But he goes on to boast, and what does he boast in? Suffering. His suffering, that's right. His suffering, his humiliating experiences. I was lowered out of a city wall in a basket one time to escape. Um, persecution. His ongoing... <laughs> I don't know about the time. Maybe. The ailments that he had. What he calls the thorn in the flesh. All of that. That's what he's boasting about. 2 Corinthians 12.5 I will not boast. He says it. I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. So if he had a coloring book it would be him with a thorn in his flesh. <laughs> or being beaten or lowered through a wall. But he wouldn't even be consider himself important enough for that. So the fake apostles boasted in the power of their ministry and Paul never does that. Now he could talk about the miracles he did. He could talk about the miracles he did in chapter 19. Remember chapter 19 verse 11? God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried out from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. He could have pointed to that and said, I have incredible power. But he doesn't do it. 
When he's up against false apostles, he doesn't point to his power as a true apostle. I think I would have done that. He doesn't do it. He's a more humble man. He does, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, describe the powers of a true apostle. But he does it in um, a passive tense. So he does describe the power of an apostle. Christ gave the apostles power so they would, it would prove that they're God's true spokesman and their doctrine is what God wants people to believe. It's their authority. It shows their authority in Christ. And he says, you have seen that because in Corinth they did see that. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all per perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So he reminds them that they saw what a real apostle can do. But he uses this passive tense verb and he never puts himself as the subject of the situation. He, he never says that I performed among you. He says that were performed among you. He's just bringing their memory back about who's a real apostle or not. They were performed. He won't say it was he who performed him, performed them. In fact, he never points to a single thing that he's done. Only his weaknesses. But here's the secret. Here's the secret. He's talking about weakness and there is great power, spiritual power, in humility. The world doesn't get that. But shepherds of the church have to get it. They have to understand that. It's absolutely critical. It's the secret of power in ministry. And since Paul is fixed on serving his master, he's a slave of the Lord, slaving for the Lord, he can endure great trials and great troubles and not quit. He can pursue it. So when he's spoken against, it's for his master that he's spoken against. When he's mistreated, even brutally mistreated, it's for his master that he is brutally mistreated. The phrase of Paul in Acts 20 verse 19 where he says, all humility, serving the Lord with all humility, that's a really important phrase. It keeps you from saying things like, I am God Almighty and many lesser forms of delusions and self-promotion, which most people don't go that crazy, but all humility. Lenski, the Bible commentator, he's always into the Greek, he, he translates that phrase this way as complete humble-mindedness. Complete humble-mindedness. Which he says is, quote, the true inner feeling of one who is in truth a slave of the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, the very greatness of this high apostle lay in his lowly-mindedness. He was an example for all lesser men. But I think he's right on there. So the measure of a man to lead the church is that he serves the Lord, not himself, with all humble mindedness. And I have to say that's not what appears to, to dominate in the pastoral media celebrity world that we live in. You just don't see that quality very often. Time after time after time. And, and in the last three or four years, way too many times to count. I mean, way too many times. You, you, it, it comes out that these big ministries have been bullying and crushing the lowly and taking advantage of the powerless and all kinds of immorality. And, and sometimes you can actually hear it in their preaching before it ever comes out. You like, you know, you know, you can just tell from the way they talk. This guy that says he's God Almighty, he's going to crash and burn big time. 
just guarantee it. There was a huge podcast series just a couple of months ago, so I'm going to go ahead and mention one name, I, I, Mark Driscoll. Which Mars Hill Church was the thing in the Pacific Northwest. It was the place. You, might, you may not know that name, but you might, but for years, Mark Driscoll, he was the bad boy hero of the young, restless, and reformed kind of the young Calvinist crowd, and, and uh, he was a tell-it-like-it-is guy, and when, a, a lot of seminary guys uh, listened to him at that time. Um, people I knew talked about him quite a bit. Superstar preacher. The media called him the cussing pastor because he, he used bad language in, in uh, preaching sometimes, and he completely destroyed his church, completely destroyed it with tyrannical leadership and a lot of ethical problems as well. In fact, his elders asked Paul Tripp, he's a pretty popular author, and he was a big Driscoll supporter. He asked him to, they said, would you come and evaluate our church culture? So he did. He went and just stayed there for weeks and just observed what was going on. And he wrote up this report and he said the church was, quote, the most abusive, coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved with. And then the whole thing just started to unravel. And his elders asked him to step down and go through a process. He wouldn't have anything to do with them. Just kind of went and hid for a while. Now to me, that was the least surprising collapse of a large ministry because you could tell from his preaching long before that that this guy was completely full of himself. It was so obvious. But his elders never did anything about it. In fact, he boasted sometimes that he could throw elders under the bus, literally, like throw them under, not literally, but, you know, throw them under the bus, get rid of them, wreck their lives, uh, humiliate them, and uh, because they don't have his vision. So he laid low for a couple of years, and then another superstar pastor raised him up and helped him get a church started in Arizona, which is still going, and he is worse than ever. That's what happens. His, one of his best friends was James McDonald, who was on the radio for a long time. A lot of you folks listen to James McDonald, who built this mega church empire, Harvest Bible Chapel. Behind the scenes, James McDonald was a monster. I mean, a monster. He destroyed that ministry as well. I mean, the church is still there, but he's long gone from it. It took years for his behavior to catch up to him, but humiliating subordinates, accumulating vast wealth. His own church found, this is an official report, quote, he failed to meet the elder qualifications laid out in scripture. He had a pattern of being dis disruptive, insulting, belittling, verbally bullying others, improperly exercising positional and spiritual authority, extravagant spending, utilizing church resources, resulting in personal benefit. That never would have that report never would have been come out if a couple of elders that had stood up to him and been kicked out of the church didn't start this little website to kind of start revealing what was going on behind the scenes. So eventually it all came out. In fact, he had some pretty famous people going to that church and one of them was a radio guy and he had a recording of James McDonald just saying the most obscene things, um, berating people and, uh, and he put it on his radio show. So that kind of undid everything. You should be able to be recorded if you're in church leadership all the time and nobody can play something that would wreck your ministry. It shouldn't be able to ha have happened. It shouldn't happen because you should never be like that ever. And to do it in church meetings and that kind of thing, it's just going on and on and on. It's our culture. So anyway, these tyrants are propped up. They, these tyrants are propped up by these same elders that stay. 
And finally they had to do something, but they propped him up for years. Why would they do that? I mean, they can all read Titus and Timothy and they know what Jesus said about servant leadership and how can they do it? Well, it's, we're successful. We're successful. The whole world's listening to us. We have this mega ministry. So you just kind of keep everything, you kind of accommodate him and work around him and do all those kind of things. You know, in business they call it too big to fail, right? These big companies can wreck our economy and then the government will bail them out because they're too big to fail. Well, that's sort of the attitude in some of these churches. It's too big to fail, so you've got to... Now, I'm just picking on big churches, but it's not that. It can happen in a little tiny church. It can happen in a medium-sized church. It can happen anywhere. These attitudes, these um, sins that aren't dealt with because people are put in ministry positions that are not qualified, according to Scripture. God's shepherds cannot think like that. Elders cannot think like that. Well, we're too big to fail. Well, we can't stand up to this guy. You can't, they can't do that. You can't compromise on character for what you think is a ministry success. Because now the shame of it is so strong and all the wounded people are, have been vindicated, but how many people have just walked away from church altogether after all these things were going on? Knowingly going on. If, there, if there's not some genuine quality of complete humble-mindedness, as Lenski translates that phrase, in everyone in the position of a shepherd, that anyone that doesn't meet that shouldn't be in that position. He should not be there. And it's, the, it's your job to make sure we don't have elders like that. It's your job to bring the pastor down and uh, humble him and have him, do, have him clean the carpet. That's probably what he's fit for. But he won't do it if he's like that, if he has that attitude. So if somebody, um, you know, business operates that way, protecting the leader. In the entertainment world, they do that. We've all found out about. People do that in politics. But you can't do it in the church of Jesus Christ. You cannot do that. You've got to hold your leaders accountable. They're not above you in any way, shape, or form. So the next section, Paul is just pouring out his heart, he, this example of his own life. So and he goes from verse 20 to verse 27. And verse 20 to verse 27 is, is it's sitting in, it's, it's bracketing a paragraph, okay? So verse 20 and verse 27 say the same thing. And everything in between kind of fills them out. We're just going to touch on this right now. So verse 20, I did not shrink, I did not shrink, hold back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Whatever they needed as a church, his people, for their spiritual welfare, he labored to give it to them. Everything, that's what he's saying. Everything that you're supposed to know, I taught you. He wanted the church to have whatever God wanted it to have, not what he wanted it to have. Everything. So as a slave of Jesus, he couldn't let anything get in the way of his doing that. Because who's he serving? He's serving the Lord. That's the whole point. So people's feelings weren't more important than what Jesus hired him to do. Past beliefs that people had couldn't sway him from that. Expectations of people on him could not sway him from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Whatever pressures he felt, he wouldn't bow to them. It's really interesting when he writes to Timothy because Timothy's kind of a timid personality and he kind of keeps telling him, you need to stand up. You need to stand up. Your people need you to be strong. 
You need to have courage and deal with these situations. Because Timothy is kind of like, oh, you know, people got upset with me. And Paul's like, that doesn't make any difference. So the other end of the bracket is verse 27, where he says the same thing. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. See how it says the same thing? Different words, but the same idea. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring you to you anything that was profitable. Verse 27, a little bit more helpful detail-wise. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So he wanted them to have it all. And that's the mark of a faithful shepherd of Christ's flock. Sometimes people want from their shepherds only certain things. I don't want them to touch on other things. Other things they would rather he leave alone and not talk about them. You know what I thought about that? I was remember a book I read many years ago by John Perkins who was a black pastor in the south during um, Jim Crow in completely segregated society and he made friends with a white pastor and the white pastor started to realize that the whole structure of the south was oppressing his, the neighbors, right? Other Christians. Churches were completely segregated and the, the white pastor started to think you know, we've got to change this. And he started to make these tiny little moves and suggestions to break the code. And he got so much pushback, he killed himself. He couldn't be faithful to the Lord. Because people would never allow him, no matter how biblical it was, to talk about equality or treating your brother as yourself. His people wouldn't allow it. So you can't cave to pressure. Today it's the sexual revolution pressure. We're not going to cave to that. But people do. Churches do. Whole denominations have. It's the mark of a faithful shepherd in Christ's flock to be faithful, to declare the whole purpose of God. If the shepherd shrinks back, he's not doing his job. Sometimes people just want something that, that literally appeals to their immaturity and there's plenty of churches to feed them that. Famous pastor at the beginning here this morning is one of those people. Or something they heard somebody else say that's not right. They want to hear that. They want to be supported in that. Why can't we be like, I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet at one point people were like, why can't we be like Mark Driscoll's church? You know? Christ forbids the shepherd from giving his, his people anything that God doesn't want them to have. And he wants the shepherd to give them everything God does want them to have. So there's a lot of discernment that has to go into that. Paul warned Timothy, quote, from the time will, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. There will always be people like that. Always. We can't be those kind of teachers no matter what is offered us or what pressure is put on us. Sometimes the shepherds themselves don't want to wade into topics that might ruffle feathers. They put the pressure on themselves that they don't want to offend anybody. You don't have to be a tyrant to fail disastrously in having all low-mindedness. See, I, I don't want you to get the feeling that just a sort of arrogant bullying pride that's true of some shepherds in, in Christ. The opposite, anything that's not that is, is low-minded. That's not true. Completely 
being completely lowly minded or humble minded is it, it can be twisted in all kinds of ways to get away from that. If I'm serving anything, anything or any person instead of the Lord, if I'm a slave of anything else, whether it's the common culture or whatever, even if I'm the sweetest guy in the world and the most laid back, gentle human in the world, if I, if I embrace what God is against or I'm afraid to speak against what God is against, I am not in complete lowly mindedness because if I'm a completely lowly minded person, whatever you say, master, that's what I will do and that's what I will proclaim. I will give the whole counsel of God So these words here declare the whole purpose of God says a lot about the shepherd's teaching ministry and his preaching ministry as well as the way he conducts himself. It has to be well rounded. It has to be all true for one thing. But some people, some people spend all their time preaching politics. My wife and I actually attended a church. We went to a convention and we were way away from home and we wanted to go to some church on Sunday morning so we looked up. We found a Bible church so we assumed that well that's got to be sort of like us. <laughs> so we went and literally it was some kind of political thing. It was a tiny little church, met in a hotel room, and uh, which is fine. I didn't mind that. But they had literature out. It was all about, all about politics. The sermon was all about politics. They came and talked to us and wanted to find out if we were on board for this and that. I mean, that's what, that's what it was. There's nothing about, that's, that, that is being so narrowly focused and on something the Bible isn't that concerned with that it's not the whole counsel of God. People aren't getting anything like that. Some people preach politics, some people preach whatever's on their mind. It's not real uncommon to have a pastor read a text of scripture and just start talking and spend 30 or 40 minutes talking about whatever's on his mind, have nothing to do with that text. Now, human beings like me are extremely limited and narrow. So if, if I did that, all you would ever get is me and it would be pretty much the same stuff. You would never get the whole counsel of God. So that's wrong. Some men, and this usually has a good intention, they only preach salvation. In other words, all they do is preach the gospel every Sunday. Now, there's a, there, that has a good intention because they don't want anybody to slip away that might be there that needs to hear the gospel. I totally get that. But if you only preach the gospel, if some churches only preach the gospel and they say, well, we have other classes for doctrines or Bible studies or things like that, but not everybody goes to those other classes. So it's kind of what happens up front that matters the most. The gospel does need to be preached. It needs to be out there and it needs to be often, right? That was Paul's passion. Verse 21, he, he was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's commendable. But it's not the whole counsel of God. So God's word addresses all sorts of things. It addresses worship. It addresses a wide spectrum, spectrum, of, spectrum of doctrines, wisdom, there's whole swaths of wisdom literature in the Bible, wisdom for living, there's covenants, there's prophecy, there's Christ-centered morals and ethics, there's history, and concerning biblical history it was Paul that said these things happened to them as an example and were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So if that's true then all of that Old Testament history is part of the Council of God, the whole Council of God. That was 1 Corinthians 10, 6 where he said that. The whole Council of God is the whole Bible. And that's why ordinarily we're, we teach through books of the Bible. You know, if you teach through a book of the Bible, you can't skip stuff. You have to, you have to deal with everything that's there. 
and have to talk about everything that's there. It's really easy if you can get, pick your own verses every week that you're going to preach from because you just certain things I don't want to talk about, you'll never get there. So I'm not saying that's the only way to do it, but that's why we do it because we're forced to preach the whole counsel of God and teach it. That's why I think it's important. Because, my, you know, my opinion is of, is of very little value. It might have some value for a person of my age and experience, but not much. <laughs> Take it or leave it. But inasmuch as I am able to accurately tell you what God's Word says, then that's, oh my, I am full of wisdom. Because I'm telling you what God says, not what I think about things. Suddenly I have all this wisdom. So we teach the whole counsel of God, the Gospels, the letters, the book of Revelation, and because the Old Testament is a large part of the whole counsel of God, we teach that too. The law of God, Paul says, is holy, righteous, and good. That's why we're going through Exodus on Friday nights. The law of God is valuable. It teaches us a lot about justice and morality and right and wrong. So the Old Testament history, the events are essential for understanding what God is actually doing in history and where things are going. In fact, we just looked at Exodus chapter 24 a couple of weeks ago on a Friday night and one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, Exodus 24, for understanding everything else that's going to happen in the Old Testament. It's absolutely essential, the ratification of God's covenant with Israel, Moses sprinkling blood on the congregation. I mean, if you missed it, just read it this week very carefully, Exodus 24. That's a marvelous chapter. It's a key part of the whole counsel of God. And me telling you to do that right now, to go read that chapter, that's giving you a little key to the whole counsel of God. That's an important chapter. You should read it. It's my joy to take people through the whole counsel of God. And if you don't get it after you've read it, come and talk to me. We'll sit down and talk about it. I'd love to do that. I learned how important the whole counsel of God is from Acts chapter 20, verse 21 through 27. And because I had mentors that showed me that 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 works. That's the right thing to do. Thank God. Um, Just on this whole question of the gospel, if I preached the gospel and only the gospel every Sunday, you wouldn't know that this passage was here telling us to teach the whole counsel of God. It wouldn't be there for that. You wouldn't know about Exodus 24. You wouldn't know about things like that if all I did was preach the gospel. You have to learn as much as you can broadly through the word of God. And you know, there's ways we weave the gospel into things around here. I hope you notice that. I mean, we make it, we make it come around. But we're not going to minimize or neglect the gospel. I mean, Paul didn't, but he did give every church and tried to make every Christian understand the whole counsel of God. He did both of those things. The gospel was paramount, but the whole counsel of God was essential as well. That's what a slave of the Lord does. He says, what do you want me to do? Just tell me what you want me to do and that's what I'm going to do it. And he does it with all humility. And so we judge leaders in the church by that criterion. Are they doing what God wants them to do? And are they doing it in all humility? If they are, they're on a good path. So we just scratched the surface here of this address to the elders. We'll pick it up again next week and look at another, other aspects of it. But I hope you understand where we're trying to come from with that. When, when we pick leaders of churches, it's not based on popularity or personality or anything like that. It's based on this, this complete humbleness 
and this serving the Lord attitude and with all humility. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is so clear. We pray that you would purify your church of all boasting, of everything that is false, of all shepherds who do not declare your whole purpose, that you would cleanse the church of the proud and the foolish, and that you would judge us and purify us that your light may not be diminished. We pray that for our congregation. We pray that for the church universal all over the world. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.